do, y'all? I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey, it's Scott Lips, and welcome back to yet another episode of Spin Magazine Lip Service, my friends. My guest today is the frontman, chief songwriter, and lead singer of the wildly popular folk indie rock band Taylor Goldsmith of Dawes. The band is coming up on their 14th year their A Studio record, which is just dropping. He's also the husband of director and actor Mandy Moore. We'll get into his history, his journey, his new album, and even writing songs, the Bob Dylan lyrics, with the likes of Elvis Costello. So coming up in just a moment, Mr. Taylor Goldsmith of Dawes. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Our show today is brought to you by the fine folks at Thursday's Boot Company. You guys have seen me rocking these boots in every other picture I have on Instagram. I'm always repping them. Thursday's Boots is a bootstrap startup that makes the best handcrafted boots and sells them direct to consumer at some of the lowest markups in the footwear industry. Thursday's Boots' tagline is highest quality, honest prices because they use some of the best materials like full grain leather, supple glove leather lining, and gold standard Goodyear welt construction. Thursday's Boot Company sells their boots at prices starting at just $149 with free shipping and returns. They've been featured in all the best fashion press, from Esquire to GQ to Cosmo and Vogue. More importantly, they've gotten over 20,000 five-star reviews from real customers. Thursday's boots are perfect for people who understand quality and don't want to pay a high retail markup for a great-looking pair of boots that are built to last. So check them out at Thursday's Boots on Instagram. My favorite shoes, my favorite boots. You always see me repping them. You'll love it. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. The one and only Taylor Goldsmith of Dawes. How are you, my friend? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. We're just talking about your new single. There's so much to get into. Double drums on the new single, by yeah. the way. It's at Sun Ghost in the Machine. Yeah. Dropped today. Yeah, came out today. Uh, it's my brother and our producer, Jonathan Wilson. And then, um, then they both overdubbed a bunch of percussion and things like that. And then for the, uh, we did a, like a live version of it. We had Luis Conte come and play and that was really an honor to have him in the room with us too yeah we were talking about that when there's double drums it's difficult to tell who's doing what and there's so much going on you were saying it's gonna be it's gonna be hard to pull that off live yeah my, my brother keeps telling me he's our drummer and he keeps telling me um like we can't do this one and i said well we <laughs> yeah. have to yeah i gotta figure it out <laughs> um so maybe we'll have our you know drum tech come and he's a great drummer too maybe he'll come play a bunch of percussion if you stuff need me i'm it. available for, right. for percussion or whatever <laughs> i want to talk about the new record misadventures of doom scroller your career, your history. Obviously, there's so much to get into. But take me back to the beginning, if you don't mind. The show is a little bit about your history and everything, Taylor. So you grew up in Malibu, um, which I think it, you moved there at like 11, right? Yeah, yeah. We were Glendale before that. Um, and now I live in Pasadena and like right around the corner from that old house. So even the other day, we were taking my kid to the park. And I was like, let's drive by my old house. I haven't been there since I was since I was those ages. So um, it's crazy to be just so close to um, where I went to elementary school. But, uh, but, yeah, then we went to Malibu when I was 11, um, went to high school there. never really fit in. Um, uh, not that I didn't enjoy it. It's probably one of the most beautiful places in the world, but I never learned to surf. I never learned – I never could figure out a way to really be a part of a beach community. Um, I wish I could. I just it, – I just it never felt natural to me. And um, so once I was old enough to go live somewhere else, I initially moved to the Valley and then eventually, like, East Los Angeles, like, every – person my age did that yeah. was playing music um and now i'm about in pasadena there's a great line in uh, comes in waves that yeah. says like boy that grows up in a beach town never learns to surf yeah which is great because yeah. it, you would seem to be being around the beach and surf it seems like everyone i know that lives in that i mean i know like you know the chili peppers and a bunch mm -hmm. of guys that live out there and they're avid surfers yeah but it just that lifestyle never took to you i guess no i mean like i tried i just wasn't good at it and <laughs> yeah. and, and, and if i was going to devote all of those like fall on your face hours of not being good at something, it was going to be guitar. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I just, I don't think I had the bandwidth to then also be bad at surfing too. <laughs> um, so, but then, and, and also I found my community there. Um, Blake Mills, who um, maybe a lot of people have heard of, makes amazing records, produces amazing records and pretty massive records too. He just did the Jack Johnson and he's in the Marcus Mumford record that's, that's on its way. 
Um, but uh, and a bunch of other stuff. But anyway, he and I met at like ten and eleven years old, and um, he's just was the greatest guitar player, still one of the greatest musicians I've ever met, and such an inspiration to me, and such a guide, even though he's a year younger than me. But um, but we we both were in that same boat. We you know whenever it was time for parties on the beach with bonfires and stuff we would be in a in our own little goofy toy studio or <laughs> if, in, in, during any lunch period we'd go back to the music room and play one chord for 45 minutes till it was time for fourth <laughs> period um it's interesting you, you speak about community there was a little bit of a community in malibu in terms of like the music scene right which people don't think about malibu as like this hotbed of yeah uh, of music but i think at that point when you guys were starting the band obviously you guys started simon dolls together back in the day yeah. There seemed to be a little bit of a scene that was brewing there, right? There was. I mean, it's funny you say hotbed. It feels more like a cold bed. <laughs> Just like it felt. It, you're right. There was definitely some people coming out that are still in the game and 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 really inspiring guys like Dwayne Betts and um, and certain artists like Cisco Adler and stuff who had a has had his you know feet dipped in so many different aspects of the music business. But um, it. it in my estimation, I hope these guys wouldn't mind me saying it. It was very much behind the curve. Like like Malibu, we the things that we that were the cutting edge just felt way off target in terms of what was cool in like the year two thousand and three when I was graduating high school. Um, Blake and I were we weren't in anything cool. We were listening to Dave Brubeck and Steely Dan, so yeah. we were way off the mark. But but everything else there just felt like when you're in the bubble it was like wow we're really like something's happening here and then you go to the troubadour and see you know indie bands or or go to the even the, the bigger venues and stuff and it felt like oh wow malibu is really on its own planet <laughs> right. and i think that in a way yeah sure like i think that that kind of helped give us permission to be whoever we wanted to be for anyone that did get out of there yeah um you know even guys like chris chu from the morning benders later became pop etc he's amazing and Guys younger than us, Lewis Cole is doing amazing stuff right now. Mm. So there was a, there was, oh, and then Devendra Banhart was like uh, two years older than me. Well, I know it's not like a popular part of his story that, <laughs> but, uh, but he, you know, yeah, he went to Malibu High. Um, and then there's the generations beyond us, like Rob Lowe and like the, like these Rat Pack guys that were all, or whatever, or the Brat Pack, I should say, that were all, um, coming out of there too. So there is, there is something going on there. Um, maybe it's just, a lot of privilege. <laughs> yeah, you, you're funny. You're right. You don't talk to Van der Benhart. You never hear about that part of his story. Yeah, you always hear about South America. Exactly. It's not nearly as sexy yeah. to say, oh, he spent some time in Malibu, yeah. too. No, I actually, I went to high school with Perry Farrell on, on Long Island, and uh -huh. that's never part of his history that he <laughs> talks about, like the mean streets of the five towns on Long Island. Um, but tell me a little bit, your, your dad actually sang for Tower of Power, which is incredible. Yeah, he, he, he did that for, for two years, um, the year before I was born to the year uh, when I was one and then that was kind of it for him touring after that he, he got into different odd jobs and telemarketing and real estate and that sort of thing i mean our you know malibu is a trippy place because it's two things at once I, i'm not going to sit here and say that that i didn't um have a lot of opportunity afforded me by my by my upbringing but there are those houses that have fucking trains in malibu <laughs> right. and then there's the people that live in the the rv community and they, yeah. they're hanging out inside outside of the gelson's and stuff every day um, but even it, that RV community, because I've been in there, they're they're not they're yeah, expensive no, it's, RVs. It's, it's nice. It's, it's like nice. Matthew McConaughey but or like, something. It's you know yeah, but like <laughs> I, yeah, totally. It's true. There are there are some nice ones, and then there's not some so nice ones. But but our family to get to Malibu, um, I mean, it's not some sad story, but like they basically we were living out in Glendale, and and my parents were just basically putting everything they could together to make it happen because they wanted to be in Malibu. Um, cause we'd spent some, a summer there or something. And then, um, and then they just made some good real estate decisions, but it's not like, you know, everyone that comes out of there is just like, oh, that means you come from billions of dollars. I mean, that's the, that's true for a lot of people, but that wasn't the case for us. You know, we had to buy our own shitty first guitars and all that stuff. <laughs> Again, we had a leg up, no doubt about it, but, but it was, but it's, uh, it's not, it's not, I, Malibu is always a tricky word, frankly, cause I feel yes. like. You say it, and people immediately are like, "Oh, I know you," and it's like, "I, I get what you mean, and that's fair, but it's not necessarily totally accurate." Definitely, but you grew up around. You were talking about Steely Dan. I think the Replacements were a big inspiration for you growing up, right? Um, I probably they were eventually. I mean, yeah. now like Westerberg's one of my favorite songwriters, but but uh, I I don't think I was edgy enough to get it at the time. I think the, my trajectory musically was a trip because it was at first it was. 
who could flex their muso muscles the biggest. And so that's why I think Steely Dan and Dave Brubeck and was, was freaking me out. And then finding like queen stuff that was, I love, but it was definitely extreme music yeah. um, in terms of its musicality. And it, and I didn't understand so much of this rock and roll spirit. And Blake and I kind of learned that shoulder to shoulder through producers and mentors, namely uh, Tony Berg, um, who was a big deal for us when we met him, we were like 17 or 18 and, He's like, I get that this is what you like, but you need to understand why the Stones are important. You need to understand why Bowie is Bowie and why Elvis Costello is Elvis Costello and the Kinks are the Kinks. And um, that that really that was much more of a foundational education, and that allowed me to understand why something like the Replacements are the best. You know, stuff like that. I didn't. To me, it was like, who can sing the highest? Who can play the fastest? Yeah. And and now I don't care about that stuff really at all. Like oftentimes the worse a singer is the the more i get fired up by it yeah <laughs> it's funny you talk about that simplicity of even bands like the stones charlie watts is such an incredible drummer yeah but a lot of people mistake the fact that he was simple that he wasn't as great as a drummer like bonham or neil Perter. totally or and i think a guy like him speaks to that that ineffable quality in any important artist or group where they, it creates its own dna like when when keith starts an open tuning riff and charlie comes in with his thing the sound that those two guys make specifically them i mean obviously the whole band but to me like the core is really the, those two like when that starts that's a sound that will never be found anywhere else on the planet and to me that's so much more special than quote-unquote chops yeah um or being able to fly around the toms or something so like that's the thing that i feel like my eyes were open to recognizing that dna whether it's whether it's a bunch of monsters like the guys in Guns N' Roses or if it was the guys in R.E.M. Because like, yeah, yeah. they, they both have that thing where you cannot find this this sound, this thing, this living, breathing thing anywhere else. Definitely. So you meet Blake. You, you both go to the same high school. And immediately you form this bond. And you start to make music together. So talk to me about how Simon Dawes kind of formed and obviously the direction musically to where you are today. Because, you know, Dawes has taken a, there's a, there's a, yeah. a big difference between Simon Dawes, how you started, and today. I think you're like eight records in now. Yeah. And congratulations, because by the time this comes out, the new record's dropping. So it's oh, your cool. eighth record. So cool. we'll get into all that. Um, so, yeah, like we when we met, it was like... We again, we were just trying to figure out how many notes you could put in a chord and, yeah. and just make it as as fucked up as we could, but not in like a break the rules fucked up, but but more like look at how smart I could be right. fucked up. Um, intellectual music, yeah, yeah. I mean, but for a 15 year old, mm. so it wasn't it was by no means intellectual music. Mm. Um, but it was just like how fast can we fly around, and which I think in the long run was good for our theory minds like how to create harmony, how to uh, like that stuff. It was it was important at that time to try to write those kinds of songs. Um, and then as time went on, it, that became like, we started to realize like, oh, this is not, there's not a lot of taste in this. So at least, mm -hmm. at least, I know that's a subjective thing, but at least our tastes weren't to be found in here. Um, and that's kind of when we did start discovering Bowie and, and, and the Stones and, and, and the Beatles and Dylan. Obviously we had grown up knowing every Beatles song, but just like kind of unearthing that, that even deeper level of why that was so important. Um, for me, it was like going from being I could like it's I could say succinctly by it being going from being a Paul guy to a John guy. Yeah, um, that might be problematic for some people, but whatever. That's how I see it. By the way, it's um, interesting when I watched the documentary uh, just a few months ago. I didn't realize that Paul really became the leader of the band yeah. in the last few years, and I always thought Lennon was. It was sort of his band, but you really see how well, and Paul... He, and Paul even says that in there. He says, like, this was the, you, you've always been the leader, and, yeah. and from watching it, you're like, that's not the case at all. And not to disparage one of the all-time greats, but I definitely... I couldn't help but wonder, like, to what extent is this just Paul being um, such a freaky genius that everyone has to sort of back off? And to what extent were the other three guys sort of beaten into submission yeah. i mean george was definitely beaten into submission yeah, yeah. he's so, like i give up i surrender i'm, I'm done that yeah. documentary was incredible yeah, truly incredible yeah. but anyway um so like yeah the second version of simon dawes we were we we all of a sudden wanted to beat our songs up and 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 we did want to find the wrong chords we got into records like big star third sister lovers that was like a bible for us yeah. like hearing hearing instruments drop in the background and hearing lead vocals that were really not like passable but yet there they are on the album and and you hear these stories that they used a basketball for a snare drum on one song and 
just all that meant that that contributed so much to our vision and so um we from there we met Stuart Johnson who became the drummer for Simon Dawes he had a studio in his living room out in Venice and we would just go there on the weekends this was I was like in college I only went for a couple semesters and Blake was finishing his last year at Mount High and we would go there every day and Stuart was older right Stuart was older he was older. um he was like in his late 30s when we met him um and we were yeah we were almost 20 um and so we yeah, we would just go there every day and we would just make the nastiest sounding music. It ha it really had its own thing to it because we just didn't know what we were doing. Um, it was all very scrappy. Like I would play drums. I'm not a drummer. Um, and Blake would play drums. He's not a drummer. And it just, there was something charming and childlike about it. Um, from there, we made our own record with that guy I mentioned, Tony Berg, we made our one record. Um, we tried to do as much touring as we could. We would like, we would, <laughs> we would sort of like bargain with bands to take us on tour. Um, like uh, like Band of Horses, God bless those guys. They needed other members, um, and our label manager, whoever, let them know, like, if you take this band out, you can have them as side guys. That <laughs> You don't have to pay them. You could just pay them as an opening act. And so they, they said, sure. So, like, we were really, like, desperate to get any touring we could. Finally, like, um, Blake started to realize that he had much more to offer as if he could stay home. If he could be a producer and a, and a side guy and a session guy and, and focus on more making records. Whereas Wiley and I, who's still in Dawes, from Simon Dawes, um, we realized, like, we actually want to be on tour all the time. So that's when we went separate ways and became Dawes. I heard this great story that you're working so hard early on. You were, like, literally eating, like, in the shower. And you're working a job for, like, insurance <laughs> while you're playing music and you're doing all this. So, I mean, by the way, I don't even know what that's like to eat in the shower. But I, I imagine that's... <laughs> that was a, Griffin, I think. That oh, was, was that you yeah. or Griffin? I don't know. It was one yeah. of you guys was Gr eating yeah, in the shower. We were working... Uh, our mom worked at an insurance Griffin, place. your brother, who's yeah. the drummer. Yes, does, yeah. <laughs> um, our mom uh, was at this insurance place, the home home warranty insurance. I still don't really know what, what it meant. and um, And we would go there and I would talk to, like contractors about like pool heaters and and <laughs> stuff that I don't really remember much about but it was it was really bizarre it was really soul sucking uh, you know for us cuz I, I think like if I was at this age now and that had to be my job I think I could go at it clear eyed but back then it was like wait what am I doing here I was just on <laughs> tour and I want to go back and here I am with a you know like a headset mic on a telephone just talking to contractors about pool heaters <laughs> right. um and then we would record we after we got out of work every day we'd rush to the studio and and we made a record first record like that and yeah it was pretty griffin would go to the bathroom and um and lock the do public bathroom door and just would go sit on the tile and fall back asleep <laughs> it's disgusting amazing i mean do you guys find, i'm sure you get along quite well i hear it's not like uh you know the oasis brothers or chris and rich robinson but you guys get along incredibly well right yeah we we've made that a um basically our top priority mm. i think um before the music before the money or anything not that there's too much of that but, right. but uh, um before any of that stuff it's always like how do we make sure he and i are always on the same page uh, and 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 that goes for all of us i, I feel as close to lee and wiley as uh in, in a lot of ways as well um we're always making sure that it's not like a democracy it's not like well three guys voted for it so sorry taylor they're gonna we're gonna do this show it's like we all have to get to a place where we're actually voting the same way um and we keep talking through it until we're until we're there um so yeah we've i think that and i think that's something i'm sure you can attest to this like when that's gone and someone's just on stage taking the check. Yeah, and they, it's they, not worth it anymore. And, and, and the people that can tell even before the people on stage are the fans. Definitely. Um, I think that when the magic's gone and you're no longer a quote-unquote gang, um, the people that know first are the people that wanted to be in your gang. And there's so many bands that are phoning it in, and at that point it just doesn't make sense yeah. anymore. But in terms of pivotal moments for the band, I mean, would you say that like When My Time Comes is was sort of the pivotal moment for the band and, and that record and that really taking you to the next level would you say yeah totally i mean the weird thing about that song was that we finished the record without it um we had a 10 song album with no when my time comes on it and we were just sort of sitting on this album hoping that we could figure out a way to tour it or release it we had no label we had no managers um we were back at the insurance job 
Um, at this mi- point, I might have been doing like uh, online marketing for bands, which was like, I what was that mean? Either it's, <laughs> it was really like anytime that anyone out there is hiring an online marketing person, make sure it's not it's like you. what I was doing. I would <laughs> yeah. just call, I just called these people, like people that like now cover some of our stuff, but it was like the muzzle of bees.com and consequence and all these like rel- all right. re- uh, uh, reputable blogs and sites and stuff. Yeah. And I would somehow, because of my boss, I would just be given this like list of phone numbers. I'd call them and I'd say, Hey, would you like to cover this band that, you know, we were getting paid to like online market. And these people constantly were like, how'd you get my number? Never call me again. <laughs> they blocked you. Yeah. And so like, I, I was like, is this what all online marketing is? <laughs> just some dumb kid just like cold calling saying, yes. Hey, here's a band you've never heard of. Would you consider covering it? Um, so yeah, it was a weird job, but anyway, um, that was what I was doing right, right, right uh, after we'd recorded, and when we were just kind of in this limbo of what's going to happen next. Um, honestly, when we made North Hills, it felt like I'm glad we're doing this because this is probably it. I'm glad we're going to be able to make this so that when I show all my friends at regular jobs, hey, look, I made a record that one time. Um, so for it to have turned into like an, a, a door opening and for us to have a career was really cool. But I do think that when my time comes, making it on the record last minute was really pivotal because basically we had the record done, we were showing friends, and then when there was one night in particular, some friends were over at our house. We all lived together. Um, Griffin was in the garage. like It was like a pretty beat-up spot out in the valley, um, and our living room was just a rehearsal space. Wiley hated it, so he was never there. <laughs> but um, one, one night, a lot of friends were over, and I started playing the riff to When My Time Comes, and, and I was singing the chorus. Um, and they were like, you, what is that? You have to, what you have to tell me what that is. I said, it's just a idea. I, n- I haven't ever written the, the verses for it. It's just a stupid chorus idea. And he said, you have to finish that now and you have to go record it immediately because it's really important. And, and, um, he was and right. It, and it's going on the record. Yeah. And it needs to get <laughs> on the record. And we were like, well, we're out of money. Our producer's the man, this guy, Jonathan Wilson, who still produces a lot of our records. But we don't want to like, hey, can we go back? Like we've already asked so much of him. He's already done us so many favors. That record cost us like five thousand bucks. Like it was, and, it, and which was all we had. Amazing. Um, and then what? Then the, like serendipitously, Jonathan called us and said, "I'm putting together this Roy Harper covers album. I don't even know if it ever came out. Um, and I'm getting everyone I know to come cover a Roy Harper song." And I said, sure, but if we come early enough, if we finish early enough, could we maybe just try to do this other song really fast? And I could tell he was a little like, oh, man, like here they, here these kids go again asking me for favors. But he's a, he's a really good dude, and he said, okay, sure, if we finish early enough, let's do this other thing. And um, meanwhile, I couldn't finish writing the song. I had the first verse written in the choruses, but I needed another verse. And... Um, so we did the Roy Harper song. I had my notebook on the music stand, and I was like, "I, I guess we're gonna get to when my time comes. I have to, um, I have to figure out the second verse." And so I just kind of wrote something uh, right before we recorded it. It was kind of like as it was happening that last verse came out, and then we recorded it. But it very much was like the last chance to make that album. And then once it did. Um, it's still we still we didn't know it meant anything we were just like okay that other song's there now and um and then the the guys in delta spirit were i think were a huge part of us having any career because they were going on a headlining run not the biggest venues but they were selling out their rooms bowery ballroom and uh great american and sf or something like that um and uh i don't remember where the la show was but like 500 to 800 people um sometimes a little less sometimes a little more and they uh, said, like, we want to bring you guys on tour because we toured together a little bit with Simon Dawes. And they said, like, our agents are telling us no. Our <laughs> managers are telling us that we can't bring you. Um, That's a vote of confidence. Yeah, but we're going to but we're going to bring you and we're going to be able to pay. We, but but because no one's saying it's OK, we can only pay you 50 bucks a night for the whole band. Amazing. So our guarantees were 50 bucks. Oh, God. <laughs> and it was 2000 and. Eight basically into 2008, our record officially came out in 2009. But but we had these physical copies in 2008, which, as people will remember, was the, the height of the recession. Yeah. So we were we basically were like we we scored because gas was a buck sixty, and we were driving all the way to Atlanta and all the way to New York and all the way to Seattle and all the way to Texas. And um, we thought for sure like we're not going to be able to do this whole tour because it's just too much. Um, 
it's just going to be too expensive and 50 bucks a night isn't enough to, for four people to live on now was that but in a van or a car you were it was in a van okay, okay. with a trailer because okay. um, we still had that stuff left over from simon dawes we just kind of just took it and blake didn't mind because blake wasn't touring anymore um and then and then on stage every night opening for delta spirit i would just say to the audience um we're dawes thanks for getting here early thanks for spending some of your time with us um uh, if anywhere if anyone has a place where we could sleep we would love to do that. So, so, like, we didn't really pay for any hotels. We just slept on strangers' floors. We had our sleeping bags. I used to do that with my band, but it's a bit sketchy. Yeah, I, mean, I wouldn't you, do that you now. Can, uh, I wouldn't definitely do that run into some precarious positions. Yeah, there, there were some funny, <laughs> funny nights of like people where we ended up with like people that lived like squatters. Yeah. And it's like, well, of course you invited a band over because you don't give a shit. Um, there was like a tent you slept in, like a bong tent at some point. Or yeah, something, yeah, right? one, yeah, Griffin, um, Griffin, uh, like there was this guy that insisted on everyone smoking his DMT with him. And then he, no, but no one felt anything except he claimed he did. But everyone else was like, this isn't anything. <laughs> I didn't do it. I was in the van sleeping. I was shivering, but I was trying to sleep in the van by myself because I was too much of a wimp to, in, to indulge. It's funny because the song that actually dropped today, literally today, as, as we say to Ghost in the Machine, is about this. It's about it your is. early years. Yeah. And it's about you know, sleeping in, you know, bong tents and mm -hmm. touring in vans. So tell me about this early years. I think one of your first tours was actually, I think you toured with like Maroon 5 and Incubus. Yeah. Incubus. Those were Simon Dawes days. Like, Incubus was yeah. Dawes too. Or no, no, was that was Simon Dawes. Dawes okay. as well. That was, it's funny you mentioned those two. Maroon 5 was the first Simon Dawes tour and Incubus was the last Simon Dawes tour. Maroon 5 was hilarious because we were, we had no idea what touring was. So like we, we go open for this band that, at this time, and I'm sure it's probably still true, their relationship to their touring audience is very unlike anything else I've ever witnessed. Like, we would be on the stage, everyone would be there, everyone would be, like, there would be mostly 12-year-olds, but then there'd be all these, like, like randy moms that would that, and I, we could see their little glow sticks like w that that were probably like a few feet long but they have these little tiny specks way out in the corner of our vision like that's how far away people were this whole place was full and we'd say okay we're gonna go to the merch booth over by like door a 23 or whatever it was and we'd be escorted to like the main area and then we would literally be chased to this merch booth we felt like the Beatles, and we thought like this is touring. This is just what our lives are. Like we really had no, we had no basis of comparison. So we just thought like, I guess we did it. I guess this is just. And the reality is, they would. They had no idea who we were. They didn't even care about us. They didn't like our music. They just were psyched to be at rock and roll concerts. And anyone that was on the same stage as Maroon Five, they treated that way. But it was really extreme because we'd go to our dinky little minivan at the end of the night that's next to their fleet of buses right. and there's all of these women and and men um hanging over the edge like where's adam where's yeah. all these people and taking their tops off and asking us to sign their bodies and um it was just ex very extreme and very like mind-bending for our 18 year old brains um, now, and, what were you getting paid for that show? Because you got 50 bucks. Oh, for I the think it was like 800 bucks or something right. like okay. that. This, right. But this was it. Simon Dawes' day, yeah. so this is well before the 50 bucks a night Dawes show. But, you know, Maroon 5 had more of a budget. But even still, that was a, that was their, their bass player, I think at the time, really liked our band. Okay. Um, but they didn't. They, they they weren't they were just doing us a m massive favor. I don't, I don't. Obviously, we weren't worth any tickets. No one knew who the hell we were. <laughs> we had an EP out that had four songs on it. Um, that we, only physical copies at that time. Um, and then, yeah, by Incubus, everything was just like the wheels were coming off. And it was like we, we clearly no one was having fun anymore. And and we, you know, with Incubus, we were playing to thousands and thousands of people. They were really massive. I guess they still are. Um, and w at the end of the night, we'd go check in with like the merch rep. Like, so how'd we do? And they'd be like, you sold three CDs. And it's like <laughs> we played for 8,000 people and just no one cared. And and I we didn't either. It goes back to what you and I were saying, like. When the when the spark is gone on stage, like everyone else is gonna, you know, crumple it up and toss it aside because why would they give a shit? Yeah, though I can't speak for Maroon Five. Brandon Boyd's a great friend. They're great oh, guys. Yeah. So they hopefully, really are. no, I mean, that part of it was amazing. Yeah, We'd hang out with them every night, Mike and Ben and Brandon. Yeah, uh, that part guys. was amazing. Yeah, it was just that the the audience didn't give a, didn't care about us, even though those guys they offered us the entire tour. It was like two months of shows, like which doesn't happen. Like yeah. normally, if you're gonna give some small band a leg up, you'll give them a week. Yeah, fine. but these guys gave us eight weeks, and um, and it it 
couldn't have been a more ideal situation for us to just recommit and and but instead it just it broke everything down so yeah so uh it's incredible you have this amazing career it's well, i think you're what eight records in now 14 mm-hmm. years how yeah, you feeling crazy. about the state of music these days in terms of the new records just coming out in a week or so yeah you have a single that dropped today I mean, in terms of when you started in the van to now, how are you feeling about the state of music and, and obviously Dawes at this point? Um, I wonder if every creative person feels this way, but I'm a little, I'm always a little, I'm always six months away from needing to go like work at a restaurant or something in my own brain. <laughs> I think my, we're all like that yeah. in the music industry. Yeah, always, it's always, right? it's always about to be totally over. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and it never is, but that's how it always feels. And it and I and it's still true right now. I think part of that it's that part of that feeling is important. I don't think it's healthy, but I do think it's motivating. Um, it keeps me working hard. Um, I wish I could work hard without that feeling going on in the back of my head, but it's always there. Um, but yeah, I, I I've always felt like I've barely snuck in um, when like no one was looking, and I'm just standing in a corner getting to do this for a living. Um, not on the big stage, but on a stage. And, and, and so for that, I'm grateful. Um, but I'm always like, man, wow, that band's playing MSG. I want to do that. But I'm not, I think when I was, you know, when we were making our first, second, third, fourth records, it, it felt a little more like maybe this is it. (laughs) Because initially you were saying you just wanted to be a songwriter and be on stage, right? So, I mean, I think having that 20 year trajectory or 20, 20 album trajectory, and yeah. you're already like eight albums in. You're already almost halfway down. Yeah, no, totally. So. And that 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 has be, over time that did become the the um, the goal, like just to stay yeah. in the game, stay in the fight, and um, and that's happening. And so for that, I'm I'm truly grateful. I mean, I also think that right now with the way that music is broken and sold, like, you know, I'm 36. I'll be 37 next month, and like. All, all love to like all of the people that we work with, but when they try to talk to me about like getting better at TikTok, <laughs> it's just like I, I, don't, I know you're right. I know that yeah. that's like uh, that, that is something that helps bands yeah. like on uh, statistically or whatever. But it's also just not gonna happen. Like, I mean, I've tried. I've, I've, I've gone on there. I've sang new songs that that, that I've never released and stuff. And I try to, <laughs> I try to like be, be true to myself, but yet active in this new space. But it's like this. I can't. No, nothing that g- good that's ever happened for Dawes is because of my my social social media prowess, <laughs> and and I. So I think like I'm. We're lucky that this started for us when it did. Um, we'd be even luckier if we were a band in the mid '90s instead of <laughs> like instead of like the late aughts. But I think uh, yeah, like if we if we were starting now, if I was 20 now and with 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 Dawes songs. Honestly, I mean, maybe every band feels this way, but I don't think we would have stood a chance at all. I don't yeah. think we we would have we would have had any career because our fan base is it's really word of mouth. It's really about coming to shows. It's less about records. It's less about radio. It's less about sales. Like our, like I I look at bands on Spotify with their monthlies who who will play venues, you know, all due respect, but like much smaller than us. And but on Spotify they'll be crushing yeah. they'll, they'll look like they're the biggest band in the world and then you go look at our page and it's like oh this is a tiny band and then and not that we're a massive band but we're bigger than that that than the phone will indicate yeah yeah um and that's that's a fast it's hard for me to wrap my head around that sometimes i just feel like a has-been when i think about all that stuff but um but then when i'm a little more clear-headed about it i feel really grateful for that it feels i, I feel like our our life as a band our relationship to our fans it's very tactile yeah um and that's pretty cool it's interesting how people consume music these days it's like like you said this tiktok generation it's like 15 second snippets of songs i don't think music was meant to be consumed in that way and i'm you know i'm from the generation as you are where we put on albums and they just kept playing from start to finish and you would listen to a beach boys record from start to finish or whoever a zeppelin record right and so I don't, music was definitely not, so you and I are, I mean, I'm, I'm with you with TikTok, yeah. you know, I, I really haven't figured it out yet. Yeah, <laughs> and I think, I think like for us, there was a time where it's like, well, how do we entertain these people that like to be entertained in this weird way? Yeah. But the reality is like, I can't do that. I don't know what that is. I, I'm a, I'm, I'm a bit of a completionist. I'm definitely like, if I put on a record, I want to sit in the car till it's done. If right, I can. Totally. Um, and, and that's why we made this new record. Um, you know, several songs are nine minutes. And it's 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 for the 
it's for the kind of fans that I am of what of the music that I love. Like, and and if there's only a small handful of fans like that, then so be it. But that's that's what we have to start playing to what we know and to the way we respond to stuff, um, rather than like try to understand some sport that like I never learned the rules of. Like, I think you know at this point, like before I even even though we weren't good at this, like I could at least understand quick tempo under three minutes get to the chorus fast that all made sense but now it's like have a very hashtag friendly title that right. happens within the first 10 seconds and then you can fuck off for the rest <laughs> of the song because no one's going to listen to it because it's going to be if you're going to have a moment it's going to be through tiktok and not that anyone's ever said that to me yeah. explicitly but i'm pretty sure that that's the that's the formula yeah, I think there's bands, I don't know if it's Pink Panthers that are literally doing songs that are like 30 seconds long. It's like, I don't even, I can't even <laughs> comprehend that. <laughs> but let's talk about The Misadventures of Doom Scroller, yeah. the new record, obviously. You have a tour coming up. So this record was started when you were in lockdown, right? It was about two years ago, a year and a half ago or so? Yeah, and um, we recorded it. We started recording the day after the election, like November, whatever that was. Um uh, literally the day after. And we, we was on the books, so we were like, oh, this is going to be a weird day, one way or the other. Um, a lot of material to write about. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it was all like height of lockdown, pre-vaccine, just so that no one wasn't do no one was doing anything. And also, I think a big thing that's, not that anyone forgot, but it's, it's easy to, I guess, like dismiss to a certain degree, but at least within music, there was no real clear path forward in the future. Back then, the conversations were like, Maybe we'll be touring again in four years, yeah. or maybe we'll never tour again at all. Maybe no one's going to want to get into a room together again. I mean, these were legitimate conversations that people were taking seriously. I was talking to my front of house guy about it. He called me like, I really just don't believe it's ever coming back, man. And we would talk about it. Um, and and I was listening to it because you guys actually launched your own podcast during that yeah, time. Yeah, period. totally. And you were talking about the fact that, like, is music ever coming back? Are we going to get to tour again? Yeah. I miss it. And I think everyone that played music at that point was just like, you're right. Is it coming back? Are we going to, when is the next show? Yeah. Every and you remember there's a bunch of like false starts. So, you know, bands would go on the road for a month and then everything would shut down again. Yeah. And everybody, it, it didn't look great at that no, point. No, it didn't. And I think that all that had a big, was a big factor in what put this record together. I mean, in a lot of ways, I think that this album is a love letter to the sh show, you know, because like, like these songs are, they're built for that. They're nine minutes in some cases. They're all these different sections. There's a lot of instrumental breaks. It's all, it's all for that. They're not these, these, um, you know, quick up and down, like three minute tunes with a bunch of courses. Like there's a lot of playing and there's a lot of exploring. Um, so they were really geared for the stage. Um, I, and I think that it's because we were missing that so desperately that we wanted to make a record like this, uh, among other factors, but that was a big part of it. You can hear the vibrancy in Ghost in the Machine. Jonathan yeah. Wilson, actually, I think he plays drums yeah, on this track, he's right? the second drummer. It's Griffin and Jonathan Wilson, our producer. They both played the drums. Yeah, so the story we were kind of getting into for a bit, but it is about the early days. Yeah. It's about how you were touring in van. So, again, like, how's life changed for you now? Because that was back then, yeah. and now we're eight albums into it. Um, I mean, the shows are just as fun as they ever were. And actually, they're way more fun than they ever were. Um, I think, like, there's those bands that... Um, they they show up uh and they're all gunslingers at like day one like <laughs> appetite for destruction or yeah. dire straits first record where everyone's a monster um the first note and then there's those kind of bands i think we're one of them um not as big necessarily but where we're we're like learning our instruments in real time yeah um i, I think of like the grateful dead is that like where what jerry does in the late 60s and what he can do by the late 80s are worlds apart and we got to hear it you know um i feel like our band we, we grew as players as time went on griffin and me and and wiley especially lee wasn't in the band on the first four albums but but um we uh yeah, like we learned our like with the first record, I had to write all my solos because I didn't know what I was doing. And now we all were players. You know, I'm not. I'm, I wouldn't claim I'm the best guitar player, but but I'm better than I was. And that makes the shows and the touring so much more fun. The hard part about it is, um, like back then, well, first of all, you're bulletproof when you're when you're 23. So right. I could I could drink and I could not sleep and it wouldn't really matter. Sleeping TPs. Yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> Bong Yeah, smoking, <laughs> smoke, fake DMT. Um, and just, uh, and nothing could stop us. Like yeah. we would never sleep. We would always be driving. We'd be up at the crack of dawn. We'd play all night and drink and we would sleep for three hours and do it all again. And we all, and no, no one was phased. Um, if I did that once now, I would ruin a whole run. <laughs> I would ruin a whole <laughs> tour just by doing that for one night. 
Um, so like our operations are very, it's a lot more fra not fragile, but it's a lot more, um, we take it seriously and we, and we, and we, we like life on the road is, is we live like Spartans. Like we're very conscious of like how to stay healthy, how to stay rested, how to stay in shape. Um, and I, that's, that definitely doesn't, that's, there's not a lot of rock and roll romance there, but I find that the bands that still do it, it's because that that is their sort of guiding principle. Like I, I made jokes, like there was a time where, where, you know, bands would cross paths at a hotel or at a venue or something and they'd ask where where the drugs were where the cocaine <laughs> right. was and now it's like where's the best smoothie in right. town and where's where, the wheatgrass yeah where's the yeah where's the lipospheric <laughs> vitamin c i'm out um so like and that's definitely us i mean i again i, I, I part of me wishes i could we were a little edgier but i think that's why we're able to do this um do you and, romanticize about the early days though, touring in oh, the yeah. vans and yeah? Oh yeah, I, I I always joke that I'd really love to do a van tour for like two shows <laughs> right. and then be done, yeah. just to have just do one more load out yeah. by ourselves in a in a shitty van trailer and and then be like, cool, great, did that again. Now I want to yeah. go back home. Um, I remember when I was touring my band a few years ago, there would be like four of us sleeping in a motel six in the bed, the guys. Yeah, and I'm like, this is not glamorous and i don't think people understand yeah. now, the singer might be staying in the four seasons but the <laughs> band isn't you yeah know, and, so and like, with, with our early days we'd get one room it'd be all of us and a tour manager so two guys in each of the queen beds and then we'd rotate out who slept on the floor uh griffin my brother who's five years younger than me at the time he was 18 so he was even more resilient so he he and he was just such a like badass like and could handle anything he's like i'll sleep on the floor so he kept doing it over and over every night sleep on the floor he's still sleeping on the floor <laughs> well now now he's now he's like probably more rickety than than like he's always complaining about like a My certain soreness and stuff yeah but also he's a drummer and mm. like he he uses his body in a way that i can't relate to um but also another hard part about touring now versus then is that I have a kid and I have another one on the way. Yeah. Um, Congrats, by the way. Thank you. And before when, you know, when we'd be touring, I felt like the the time at home was a pause away from my real life. And now I feel like it's the exact opposite. While I love the shows and I love the everything about, like, I feel like there's so much of me in all of it. I feel in a way, certain way now, I feel like the tour is a pause from from my real life back at home. And, um, you know, I'd never counted the days back in the day, but now I kind of do. Yeah. Because, uh, like, if I have to be away from my wife and my kid for two weeks, it hurts. Especially it, with a new baby on the way, yeah. right? Yeah, totally. Because like, you and your brother were actually backing up your wife, Mandy, for yeah, a while, right? We were. So. we did that for two weeks. We, we had two more weeks on the books. I think my wife, I mean, this is one of the coolest qualities of hers, but she is... She's not scared of anything. And so when her our, her doctors were sort of reminding her, like, well, you're going to be six months pregnant and your kid's going to be with you and touring's hard and sleeping on a bus is hard. Um, and she was like, yeah, I got it. Don't worry about it. And then it just as time went on, it just that in that first two weeks, the shows were a blast. She was handling like a champ. But it just got to this place of like we're we're getting close to this maybe being irresponsible for for an unborn kid so yeah. like she was just lifting bags and just couldn't sleep as she, much as she needed to and it just became clear like for the sake of this baby like this isn't the time to do this um i love the fact like her spunk and her willingness to get out there i also love the fact that she was willing to call it when when the, when it became clear that that needed to happen because i think um that's also really hard too yeah um do you so, write together a bunch? You do, right? You we, work. yeah, we well, we're her whole record. We wrote every song together, along with our producer, uh, Mike Viola, who's a genius, and everyone should go get his records too. Yeah, definitely. Well, talk to me a little bit about the basement tapes, because obviously it's incredible. You took these Bob Dylan lyrics, you and Elvis Costello, and the fact that you got to do that is probably, I'm, I'm sure, a highlight of your life, right? Oh so, yes, easily. So talk to me about uh, that whole process, what it was like. I even heard that you saw Dylan like in the hallway yeah. while you were recording, I think at Capitol or something, yeah. and like. He didn't really acknowledge what you were doing, yeah, but yeah. but he knew you they were doing something probably pertaining to him, I guess, right? Um, well, I don't even know. I mean, it's funny because um, T Bone produced it. T Bone had no idea who I am. Um, when he asked Marcus Mumford to get involved, um, Marcus said, "Sure, I'll do it, but please invite my friend Taylor. He'll he'll be good for this." Yeah. So I, I'm I was really ever there just by, out of the generosity of, of of Marcus and the thoughtfulness of Marcus. So I getting there and meeting T-Bone and meeting everybody else. First of all, I'm 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 an obsessive Elvis Costello fan. Um, I don't know if obsessive is the word, but but the kind of fan that like spans the yeah. the decades. Yeah, I'll talk about songs from the 2000s. I'll talk about songs from the 70s. 
Um, and he's still great, by the way. Oh, he's yeah. And he's probably the coolest. Like, they're, getting to know him was really eye-opening because he's the kind of guy where, you know, just asking how, like, sending an email, like, how's touring? Like, he'll send me this long email, very thorough, very, <laughs> very, like, pictures included as to how shows are going and all these questions. Like, he's one of the greatest conversationalists and just, like, really present and always caring and yeah. send me this sweet poem when my kid was born. Amazing. Like, he's just as cool as you'd really hope he yeah. was. Um, that makes me happy because sometimes oh, you yeah. meet people like that. You say, you know, they say never meet your idols, and then yeah. you do, and you're like oh, a little disappointed. But obviously, no, not the, not with him. I mean, I he's I think he also he was a bit of a rascal when yeah. he was first starting. Yeah, he would yeah, just shit on anyone that got mentioned. <laughs> yeah. Like if you mentioned Jackson or Bruce, he would just like, oh fuck that person's music. Yeah. But I, talking to him and getting to know him, it became clear like, oh, I just was putting on a show. I would just thought that's what you do, and I mean, I loved their music. I just would talk <laughs> that way because I was supposed to, and it was really entertaining. Anyway, I digress. Um, T-Bone said he approved all this with Dylan, and I'm sure he did, but Dylan never, like, led on. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. He didn't want to be around for it, but obviously he had to have his permission. Um, and so we made this record. It was so much fun. We were only there for, I want to say, two weeks. We recorded, like, 50 tracks. Wow. Um, which sounds impossible, but we did. And, um, and yeah, the, the day Bob, D I was standing in the hallway, just me and Elvis. I mean, I think we were talking about, I was I was probably dr grilling him on like Elvis <laughs> Costello tri trivia. Allison or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I was like, is that you on Battered Old Bird or is that Steve Naive? Because it doesn't sound like him. Um, and uh, he was actually a good sport. But uh, as we we're standing there, just talking about music, down the hall starts walking Bob Dylan of all people in his shades with a whole entourage of people, and like, and I don't know him, so I just was sort of like backing up to give him room to walk past me. Um, Elvis knows him. And um, and Elvis said like Bob, what are you doing here? Um, and and Elvis uh, and Bob like smirked and was like, what are you doing here? And <laughs> and just kept walking. In that voice. That too. was the whole conversation. <laughs> and we both looked at each other like, what's going on? Um, I guess he was mastering one of his um, one of those like triplicate covers albums. Yeah. Um, I don't know which one, but one of those was getting mastered, and that's why Bob Dylan was there. So it really wasn't related to. Uh, the fact that we were there, or maybe he knew that we'd get a kick out of the fact that he was in the other room while we were all cutting lyrics of his. By the way, he knew what you were doing there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. He seems way too keyed in. Yeah. Um, but but yeah. So that and then like that coming out, working with Jim. I mean, I became friends with everybody. Ryan and Jim, Marcus, uh, T Bone a little bit. T Bone's so busy. I don't really. Know, I don't know if he'd remember me necessarily. But but uh, but Elvis. Like we all stayed in touch relatively and. And um, it, yeah, it's such a it was such an honor and such a cool thing to be part of, and the fact they made a movie out of it, like yeah. all sorts of wildness. I think you guys and uh, Elvis touring together would be great. So something to put it out there. I know that'd be really that cool. Could be a great tour coming I'd up. I'd love for sure. that. Definitely. Would, we we've we've opened for him a couple times, and we got to find more opportunities to do so because he's it would be really cool. Definitely. One story I forgot to ask you about. By the way, you met your wife Mandy Moore over Instagram. Yeah. How does that happen? Because if you get a DM like that, because I think she was like she was a fan of your band. Well, it wasn't a DM. It was just a regular old post. She oh, she post, right. she heard a s single or something of ours that had come out, and she posted like. I think this song's gonna. I I, li I love this. I think I'm gonna really love this album. This band's cool. Something or other. I mean, what a great post. To yeah, see, totally. Right? And I think <laughs> that was back in. The, she even said she's like, I didn't know how to do Instagram very well then. I just yeah. like th back then that was more normal. Um, and so she posted that, and then now has she seen the band? At no, that point? no, I don't okay. think so. I don't think she was really aware of us at all. She just liked the song, and then if, and I didn't follow her, so I wouldn't have known. Except a friend of mine was like, Oh, dude, check this out, and. I thought that was pretty cool, and I had our managers send her manager the whole album in advance because the album wasn't out; it was just a song, and just said like, "Hey, thanks for the shout out. If you ever want to come to a show, here's my email." And then she she decided to email me. And here's Taylor's cell. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and like, yeah, here's his eight by ten. But yeah, she emailed me, and then we started chatting from there, and then we went to dinner uh, one night before I was about to leave for a four month tour. Um, and, and, uh, it was, it was the, obviously the most, one of the most important nights of my life. Amazing. Um, and we really hit it off and we just talked every day and she ended up coming visit me on tour. Yeah. Like our first kiss was at the Saskatoon airport Amazing. because, uh, that was her first chance to come hang out. Did you know right away when you met her, you're like, this is kind of yeah. like, I mean, I think, you know, that the first dates for anyone that's like fallen in love with somebody, there's always that feeling of like, are they going to like me half as much as I'm 
liking them right now. Yeah. Um, but then within those weeks of talking, it was it felt like, oh, this is really real. And it's been like that ever since. Amazing. Well, the tour kicks off July 24th, Newport Folk Festival. I think you're doing two shows there, your own solo show and then the band show? Um, I, No, no Dawes show at Newport. No Dawes show. Okay, no, just yourself. I'm, I'm going to sit in with some friends and okay. do a bunch of stuff like that. But I... Honestly, I wasn't really. Uh, I w- there wasn't really going to be any Dawes stuff there. I, it was just get, we were going for Mandy, and um, now that she's not doing her dates, um, it was just a quick fix to just switch her out for me. And so I'll go uh, play to all of her disgruntled fans, I guess. <laughs> um, and then after, from there, we uh, we go to Japan and play our first, you know, Doom Scrollers been released. Um, show Fuji uh, Rock Fuji Festival. Rock. Yeah, yeah, amazing. I've never been in Japan. So By I'm the really way, thrilled. the greatest place I've ever been in my life. You're really? gonna love it. Yeah, it's my favorite place. I've been I've been all over the world, but I think Japan That's Tokyo, what everyone says. Thanks to cake. Yeah, it's yeah. incredible. I mean, culturally it's incredible. I mean, whatever you like in life, if you're a guy that loves like some random thing like belt buckles. There's a guy in Japan in Tokyo <laughs> who makes the, the best belt buckles in the world. Or if you like vinyl, there's an incredible story. Right. You know, just they specialize in everything. And, you know, obviously, like they take such pride in their professions that yeah. I went to a, like a tempura only restaurant in yeah. Tokyo that was the greatest <laughs> tempura that you'll ever eat. So yeah. I, I think I think you're going to have a great time. I, I think the tour takes you to the Greek here in L.A. Uh, that that will be opening for Head and Heart. Okay, for but, Head and uh, Heart. But yeah, that, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And then back, and I think it ends in September in Tennessee. Yeah, we'll be doing some. We, we they, it, it's funny. None of this stuff is like our our true headlining run, but obviously we want everyone to come out for all this stuff. That's going to be uh, in September. We're going doing a head co-headlining run with uh, Bahamas, but we're going to do this fun thing where we're not going to divide the sets. We're just he's going to be in our band, we're going to be in awesome. his, and um, we're just going to play. Le- we learn all his songs. He's learning all ours. And we'll just switch off all night and and figure out a way to put a show together. And then um, I think early in the new year we'll probably go out and do the proper headline run um, of uh, the of the Misadventures of Doom Scroller tour. Awesome. Well, check it out. The record just drops July twenty second. The yeah. tour kicks off July twenty fourth. Taylor, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Great to meet you. Thanks, man. I'm excited to hear what you think about Tokyo. So yeah, you gotta yeah, let thank me know. You. Sure. Yeah. And I think I'll come out to one of the shows. So Please. Awesome. Right on. Great. Thanks for coming in, my brother. Yeah, appreciate thanks. it. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Well, that was awesome. Taylor Goldsmith of Dawes. If you like the band, check them out. They're awesome. They'll be playing solo shows and shows with Head in the Heart. The new album, Misadventures of Doomscroller, out July 22nd. What a great guy. Excited to catch him on tour. Thanks for tuning in, as always. And if you like the show, please make sure you rate and review the show. It's super important. I am on Cameo, so catch me there. Hope to see you soon. Stay safe and see you soon. Hey, howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and Western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.